You are listening to The Book of Firsts, a podcast where we flip back through the pages of our guests' lives to uncover three of their most profound first-time experiences. A memorable first they've had, a first they want to have, and a first they wish they'd never had in the first place. I'm your host, Emma Tyndall, podcaster and producer, and this is The Book of Firsts. everyone and thank you for tuning in to this episode of the book of firsts podcast sorry it's taken a little while longer for this episode to come out but i promise you it is totally worth the wait this is such a special episode to me because not only was it the first face-to-face interview i've done in what feels like forever but it's also the last in this series for a little while as i turn to focus on other projects So I really hope you enjoy it and if you do get something out of it and perhaps felt inclined to leave us a little review and maybe rate the show, then that would also be hugely appreciated. Um, I want to give one final shout out to this season's podcast sponsors, First and Last Coffee on DuPont Street. Thank you for sponsoring this season and yeah, I hope you guys enjoy the episode. Today I am thrilled to be joined by actress, activist and all-round wonderful human being Nicola Correa Demude. You might recognise her as Elena from The Boys, Maurice Lightwood on Shadowhunters or more recently Detective Lena Torres on Resident Alien. But Nicola has been captivating our screens across Canada, the US and the world since the early 2000s. Not only is she an advocate for increased cultural diversity in film, but campaigns for inclusivity and the importance of encouraging women to measure their power and not their dress size. I was lucky enough to meet Nicola at our local gym, shout out to Philosophy Fitness, and we bonded over a shared despair for the creative industry while I watched in awe as she proceeded to smash every single rep in our strength classes on a Tuesday morning. It is such a delight to have you here today. Thank you for joining me on the Book of First podcast. I am so excited to be here. And I've heard other guests of yours say this, but you do write wonderful intros. Oh, it's such a great way to start because then I feel like we all start going like, oh, I'm so, I'm so great. She likes me that I have so, I have things to offer. Do you know when I started doing this, I was like, I must seem like such a stalker because sometimes I'm like deep in wiki like oh I could tell you where you grew up or I could tell you this that and the other and I'm like I'm scared the guest's gonna get freaked out that she's like really done a deep dive but no I think that's <laughs> great because I think you know I think the opposite is way more problematic like I think if you're if we're gonna be sharing with you it's great that you you know you yeah. look into who we are and what interests you about us I think oh, that's lovely thank I think you. it'd be way weirder if you were like this is Nicola Cry Demude and I met her at the gym and that's all I know <laughs> unless that was Welcome. the point unless that was the point of the podcast right yeah yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, no, thank you for joining me. And I know we've had it in the books for a while and I'm really, I am thrilled to be here. And I'm glad also that you like sent me such brilliant first. I mean, obviously brilliant is a term of kind of mixed signals because they are very deep and vulnerable and open. And I really appreciate that. Um, but I'm curious to ask you how you felt writing them or like picking those particular ones because mm-hmm. they're quite specific. Like how did, how did your mind sort of work towards picking those? You know, it's really funny. Um, I ask myself the questions sort of out loud. And honestly, I think in each case, they were the first ones that I thought of. Mm. Um, And if anything, I was like, oh, that's too much. Like, she might not want quite that 
not deep, but quite that like heavy subject mm. matter. Um, I think I'm someone who has done a lot of active work on coming to terms with things in my life. And, you know, I do, I'm very committed to therapy and like uh, my life has been made so much better by like really confronting the things that are, um, a little bit more intense in my life. And so they're very on the surface for me. Yeah. You know, I feel like there's, you know, if, if people want to hear what you have to say, or if you get a chance to share something, it might as well be something important yeah and real mm-hmm. and authentic i totally agree um speaking of we'll kick things off with your memorable first uh really glad you raised this because as i said i think it's so relatable but this is the first time you realized you liked yourself yeah. which just makes me i feel like it's a, a double-edged sword because i was like oh this is such a lovely one but then when i read your note and you were like i was 36 years old and i was like <laughs> what i know <laughs> Um, but tell me, tell me that story. Cause you were like, I remember where I was. I remember like everything about it. So what prompted that? Oh, it's so interesting because that was the first thing that popped into my head when I thought of a memorable first. Um, yeah. So I, I vividly remember the first moment when I actually thought, wow, I like you. You're great. I love you. I feel good about you. And, mm. uh, and it was in Winnipeg. So I'm from, I, I, so my career, I, I'm someone whose career took off for a woman anyway. Like I worked in theater the first 10 years and had been told my whole life that I wouldn't have a TV career because I was too ethnic and mixed race. I was too ethnic. I was too fat. I was too tall. I was too this. I was too that. And just not right for, for TV. And then my TV career, you know, actually took off in my 30s. So I had a very mm. late, um, and then it had quite a steep um, ascent, which was has been amazing. Um, but it meant that I had a lot of my professional firsts later than a lot of other women in my industry. Mm-hmm. So when I was 36, um, I booked my first, uh, what we call, um, like big regular role, meaning right. I was in every episode of a series. So regular means you're usually in every episode or almost every episode. Mm-hmm. And it was also my first relocation contract, which means that you're in enough of the show that instead of flying you back and forth, they actually want to move you to the city where wow. it's shooting. And you have to actually like agree to live there and be there for the duration of the show. So it's a very big deal. And I was 36 already when that happened. Um, Shadowhunters had come out. So I, I, I suddenly had this fan base and I'd done a bunch of other stuff. So all of a sudden, really quickly, I, and, but I also had like a two-year-old when this wow. was all happening. And because my career sort of took off when I was, you know, when I had a newborn, I was still breastfeeding, just really weird turn of events. Kismet just sort of, you know, so that's crazy. It's usually the other way around, isn't it? You have the career and then the kids. And you have them at the same time. the other way around. And people tell women all the time yeah. in my in my industry, you know, once you have a kid, it's over. Once you, and it's mm. not true. And that's mm. a big part of what I'm trying to do is be with with you know talking to people about my career is like that does not have to be true. Yeah. Like I was told that everything about me was wrong for TV, and then I had a baby, and then and like I was 180 pounds breastfeeding when I when I got my role on Shadowhunters, which was my big breakout role in television. And people tell you that can't happen. And it does happen. Mm. Um, and so anyway, so so things happened a bit late. These Some of these professional firsts happened a bit later for me. And, you know, I'd spent my whole life struggling with a lot of self-esteem issues and a lot of... and. I think I've been thinking a lot about this because my son is now um, he's grade school age and it's made me think a lot about when I was younger and you know I look at his friends and nowadays if kids have problems when they're young you know like 
you just get them a therapist and there's all yeah. the support at school and they talk at school about mental health and they talk about bullying. But in the 80s, I was born in 1981, and in the 80s, if there was something wrong with your kid, you just like fought like hell to hide it yeah. to just like get through. You yeah, know? yeah. And I was a kid who had like, you know, I had early onset mental health issues. I was four when I was first diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder. And the wisdom in the 80s was like, well, just don't talk about it. And like, you know, don't it'll do it. It'll go away. Hopefully it'll go yeah. away. And of course, we now know that that is the absolute 100% wrong Lost thing to do, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, but it was also very shameful for my mm. family because in the 80s, that was a very shameful thing. And no, no fault of my parents. They did their best. Like they had no one to advise them. Mm-hmm. But I grew up feeling like I had this secret, right, mm-hmm. about myself. Um, and then I started getting bullied for my weight and stuff when I was older. And and the main, and so all these things as a kid, and those were formative years. And I think the big thing like with my mental health was the way I dealt with it was I made sure that I hit it really well. And yeah. I made sure that, and my way of dealing with it, which I think is true for a lot of people who suffer in silence as children, is you go one of two ways. Like you either fall apart or you go into hyperproductive mode, yeah. right? So I spent my whole young life thinking that if I was absolutely perfect in every way, mm-hmm. then if anyone ever found out that I was crazy, that they wouldn't be able to hold it against me because I would be the perfect person, right? Mm-hmm. So I was on, I got perfect grades. I got straight A's. I was on every team. I was in every play. I was on the student council. I was the perfect kid, except that in the background was this mental health issue mm-hmm. that I was dealing with. Which is why I started like binge drinking and smoking when I was really young, and like because you can't keep that up forever. Yeah. You can't hide who it's you are facade. forever. Right? Yeah, yeah. And so even once I was like officially got the help I needed in my in my late teens and like started living a life that I was much happier with, I think that this feeling of I'm not as good as people think I am. It's mm. a, it's a trick, right? Mm. Like, and are, are there, some people call it imposter syndrome, but in my case, I think I'd really come to believe that the real me was really messed up Mm. and that the me that I was presenting to the world was a facade, right? So if you ask anyone who knew me then, they would say I was confident and successful and like, you know, the top of everything. But the flip side of that coin internally was was pretty dark, right? Yeah, yeah. And then the irony, I think, is that over time, I started to actually become that person, right? Mm. Through therapy and like going to theater school and engaging in my work and my creativity, finding good people in my life. But there was still this feeling in the back, you know, that I hadn't let go of yet. Mm. And I also, I think it drew me to some really toxic relationships, you know, like I was in relationships, like verbally and emotionally abusive relationships from the time I was very young. Yeah. I would be, you know, I was perfect on the outside and then everyone I would date would, could, you know, p- people who, um, people who are looking for victims, they can sense it. They can smell it. They, they, they can see someone and go, that person, mm. they, they, they see it. It's a yeah. very interesting energetic thing. And so, you know, I, I was always in these relationships that were with people that I think ultimately looking back at it, they, they made me feel the way that I thought I deserved to be treated deep down. You know what I'm saying? But this is after years of therapy. But anyways, all that to say that, um, you know, fast forward, my career's taken off. I, I've had my son, which I always wanted, a big dream of mine, but I have endometriosis, so I didn't know if I could have him. Mm. I did. It was massive. Um, my career took off. Everything was great. You know, my husband was super supportive of everything I was doing. Um, but I'd still held on to this to this lack of self-esteem. Yeah, and also my line of work doesn't help with that, where people no. are constantly saying horrible we'll things to you. We'll definitely get right? onto that later. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, all that to say that there was this one day, and it was actually partially triggered because I was I was having a kind of very negative experience with someone in my life, uh, someone that I loved, but who was not, um, who was making me feel bad about myself. Mm-hmm. 
And I got off the phone with that person one day and I remember thinking, I don't think I, I don't think I deserve this. I don't, mm. I don't think I deserve this. And, and that was sort of a new feeling for me. And then I moved to Winnipeg to do the show and everything was just great. And I'd started this new job and this person from my new job who I just met was like, wow, you're such a positive person. You know, you're so, you're so positive and you're so happy and it's so great. And I remember sitting on that couch. So I'm sitting on the couch. I can remember the light coming in from, I guess that would have been the North maybe. Mm -hmm. I can't remember, but it was like, I could picture the couch was this pleather couch in this condo they'd rented for me. And I remember thinking about that person saying that and suddenly going, he's right. That is actually who I am. Yeah. That is who I actually truly am. It's not a facade. It's not an act. Mm -hmm. At the deepest part of myself, I actually am a nice, happy person yeah. who has accomplished a lot of things and who and who is good. Wow. And it was the craziest. Like it makes me really mo- it sounds so simple, but it's not simple. And you know, I was, I mean, yes, I was 36 years old. And I remember saying to someone like, I know that's sad that I was 36. And then they were like, yeah, but a lot of people never, never get, get there. That. Right. Yeah. And it was really funny. It was this massive turning point. I suddenly felt this really, I felt this really strong, um, sense of worth for the first time in my life. And I literally went home when I finished that job and I started really rejigging my life. I got rid of everyone in my life that was not positive for me. I started setting serious boundaries mm-hmm. with people in my life that always had trouble with boundaries. I just started setting those boundaries and it wasn't hard anymore mm. because I didn't, I was protecting myself because yeah. I was now someone who deserved my protection. Oh, you know what I mean? Yeah, I love that. And I'd always been really good at protecting other people. I'd always mm. been a good friend. I feel confident in that. I'd always been a good friend. But for the first time, I was like, I'm my friend. You know yeah, what I mean? Like, fucking great. I am my friend. Yeah. I'm going to go say no yeah. because I, I deserve better Care than this. about me. Yeah. And it changed a lot. It changed how I looked at my career. It mm. changed um, how I looked at my family. It changed what I wanted for my son and how I wanted my son to see me. Mm-hmm. And it's not yeah. like I felt awful about myself the whole time but it was just that I had always felt like I was this work in progress and I had so far to go yeah and all of a sudden I was like no I I I, yeah I'm a work in progress everyone knows but I don't have that far to go I'm doing great yeah and I've and I've done well and I'm I'm proud of myself and and it's made the last so I'm 41 now so this was almost six years ago and I now just generally because suddenly I'm, you're looking at the world through different eyes and mm-hmm. the lens that you're looking through is now one where you like you like the eyes you're looking through and it makes the world look better too mm-hmm. and it makes things the whole everything you see now has a has a different um perspective that's a more positive one that's such a good quote if you like the eyes you're looking through the world looks better yeah oh it's so true nice. it is true and you know what i think that like in our modern world the word self-love gets Mm. thrown around a hell of a lot and self-care and self-love but i don't think that self-like is the same thing as that i don't think they're completely different because self-love is going i want to look after myself and take care of myself and yes there's elements of you know bigging yourself up and looking in the mirror and giving affirmations and whatever but i think self-like is actually stepping back from all of that and looking at who you are and being like she's actually fucking great yeah i love her yeah and i could give i was able to give myself love in the sense of like i could i could be gentle with myself at times i could be proud of myself it was just that 
my overall feeling about myself mm. wasn't strong. So, and I think that's what it is. It's the liking part. It's yeah. the like, I would want to be your friend. Yes. I would. And there's this quote, my favorite quote from when I was, that I learned when I was in grade nine, I think was, this sounds really confusing at first, but it's actually quite a simple concept. I wish I was now what I was when I wished I could be who I am. Whoa. Say that yeah. again. I, I wish... wish I was now yeah. what I was when I wished I could be who I am. So for example, <laughs> if my 15 year old self mm-hmm. could see me now, she'd be ecstatic. Mm. She'd yeah. be like, holy fuck, way to go. We did it. Like, you know, we, we have a great career and we have a family and we have friends and like, mm. it hasn't always been easy, but my younger self would be so proud of me. Mm-hmm. So why do we forget that yeah. as we get older? We, we just keep raising the bar on what we want and raising yeah. the bar on what we think we should have. And, and we forget to stop and go, no, like my... And that's really helpful to me. Like my younger self could never have imagined this life for yeah. me. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting because I use the younger self thing quite a lot and I despise the Kardashians with my whole being. But <laughs> Kendall Jenner did an interview once where she was like, whenever I'm feeling shit about myself, yes, guys, even Kendall Jenner feels shit about herself. <laughs> um, she like puts a little picture on the mirror of herself when she was dressed up in like Halloween or some this Halloween costume or like something cute when she was like five years old. And she was like, me being mean to myself now is being mean to that girl. Exactly, there. yeah. But I'm curious as to whether as a young child, we like ourselves or whether we just have no concept of what liking ourselves is yeah. like I'm trying to remember the first time I didn't like myself and it was definitely like puberty when all of a sudden I thought I had to look a certain way or be a certain yeah. popularity or whatever but I think I it happens know. pretty young I mean watching my son has been really interesting because mm. on one hand it's beautiful because kids are so resilient and you watch them go through things and get through them with with um, such openness and and a lack of self-consciousness in a way. But the other thing I'm realizing is how early this stuff starts. Like how early the bullying starts. Like at my son's age, like in like grade one and two, kids were already calling each other like fat and ugly and Gosh. stupid. And and some kids are allowed to play the games and some kids aren't. And you're not invited to my birthday party. And like, and it all sounds very small. But it's not. It's the foundations yeah, of your socialization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when I look back at my life... I really feel like a lot of the things that became lifelong struggles for me are actually things that started before I was 10. Yeah. I also think one really great piece of advice I got in theater school, one of my teachers, Wendy Gorling, she was the first person who encouraged me to just like start speaking completely openly about mm-hmm. my mental health stuff. She was like, why is this a secret? She's like, there's no reason this has to be a secret. It's not a bad thing about you. It's a good thing about you. It's yeah. something that's shaped you and made you more made you stronger. And she said... The things that make you weird when you're a kid are what make you an interesting adult that people want to know. Yeah. And it's so true. So it's, it's so true. So true. It's so true. 100%. And it's also like, and she also told me this the, probably the most important thing anyone ever said to me. She said, if you're not ashamed of yourself, no one can shame you. Mm. It's impossible. Yeah. If you are not ashamed, no one else can shame you. And that was, for me, that was like the lock in the key. Yeah. That was like, okay, I have to f- feel good about myself. And then none of this will matter. And it's true. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's so reassuring, but also true. I think in the creative industry, if you judge yourself, <sighs> everyone else is going to judge you too. And I look at some TikTokers and some, you know, even people on social media who release just like the most ridiculous things. And I'm like, how do you not? But they have no shame. And therefore, 
they, they, their followers don't have shame of them either. Yeah. Like it's it's really interesting. And there's something good about that. Yeah. And then there's a darker, darker side. side. Of that. Yeah. You know. There's yeah. and I think that's the thing is like once we the intention still has to be to find that liking of ourselves and yes. that strength in ourselves. As soon as it becomes about other people feeling that way about you, it's lost its power because it's, it's supposed to be the opposite. It's yeah. supposed to be, how do I not feel shame? Mm. Not, how do I make other people like me? You yeah. know what I mean? Oh, gosh, and I think yeah, that's yeah. where we find a bit of a... And that's one thing I try to be really honest about in my Instagram is like one thing I've realized as a public figure is that people constantly are like, oh, I wish I was more like you. And I wish I was... And you have to be like, no, no, like... You are like me. I yeah. am like you. Yeah. I do have all the body image issues. I do have all the self-doubt. I do have all these problems in my marriage and my family and mm-hmm. with my work. Like It's just that I don't go on Instagram and talk sure. about them, yeah. right? Yeah. But also I think um, it's really important to be honest with people about the fact that like when you see me on TV, that's not a real person. Yes. Yeah. And you know, I do these, I don't know if you saw them on my Instagram, but I do these um, before and after pictures to illustrate to women like how not real it is. Like Mm -hmm. it takes two and a half hours for a hair and makeup team to make me look the way that I do on Mm -hmm. TV. It takes so many spanks sewn into bras, sewn into shapewear, pulled on by a costume designer to make me look like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. In real life that people say, oh, you know, I don't look like you. And I'm like, I don't look like me on TV because that's not that I don't look like that you know you see me at the gym that's not what I look like you know what I mean like and I think women need to know that yeah it's not real don't don't compare yourself to people you see in the media it's not real yeah it is smoke and mirrors so true so true so that's a great segue into our next first which is a first you want to have again literally I read it and I was like preach I want this too (laughs) I literally want this so badly so your first you want to have is for a full day to go by where you don't think badly about your body. Oh my God. And I just think that like, I think it's interesting because we obviously met in the gym Mm. and I made a lot of really good friends in a gym environment because I think you do have a fundamental thing in common where you're active. You like to look after your body. Like a Saturday morning is great when you go to a fitness class and get coffee. Like that's how we like to spend our time. Lame, I know, but like, no, I think I think it's great. Better than day drinking, yeah, <laughs> it's great. I mean, sometimes I'll gym and then day drink. You've got to have the best of both worlds. Balance, but balance yeah. is key. But I do also find that a lot of the friends I make in those sort of environments do also share a common um, feeling or past of really battling with body dysmorphia, mm. eating disorders, how they perceive themselves comparison you know all this stuff and I'm like the gym is such a happy place for me but it also shares quite a lot of toxicity in my head of like I remember coming here and sometimes still do come here because I feel really guilty that I've been a fat bitch all day and then I'm like (laughs) is this healthy like yeah it's a very um weighted ha ha oh I didn't even mean to do that (laughs) pun intended (laughs) pun intended no it's a very um it's a very weighted environment and emotionally weighted for a lot of us and I think it represents for me anyway the best and the hardest part of my of my struggle with my self-esteem um so for me I mean that hashtag that I started measure your power not your dress size that was because um, I I found a lot of freedom in starting to work on my strength yeah. and making goals that were about feeling stronger yeah. as opposed to pounds, how many pounds I was losing or whatever. Um, and that it felt so empowering to me to have the goals be about strength, yeah. like just about being able to 
to see myself getting strong, feel myself more than see it, but both Mm -hmm. getting stronger. And that was so powerful for me. But I've also talked a lot on Instagram about how that can be a very double-edged sword because I also get, um, you know, I have a long history of what they call um, exercise bulimia, which Mm -hmm. is a lot of people don't talk about this, but it's actually very common. Um, You don't throw up, you binge eat, and then you exercise like crazy. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's the, the purge is the exercise. Right. right. And uh, and it's something that I've struggled with my whole life. But the thing is, and I think this is true for most people. I, in fact, I, I would probably guess all that I'll say most because I, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a psychiatrist, but I really feel like for most of us, our issues with weight are not actually rooted in a dissatisfaction with ourselves. They're rooted in a lifelong journey of being made to feel like the control of our bodies was what gave us value as women. Yeah. Right. And so for me, like I started being bullied when I was about seven for being fat. I remember it. I remember it vividly because I went on my first diet when I was eight years old. Because I, I was very, I was a, I grew really fat. Like I was almost fully grown at 11 years old. Like I looked like this, I was thinner, but I was basically this height and pretty, you know, almost this size. So, and my mom was like that too. She yeah. was fully grown at 11. So I was so much bigger than the other kids. And in hindsight, like, you know, not, not in a problematic way. I never no. had any health. It was just that all the kids were tiny and I was, and so I started being bullied really young for that. And it was so painful and like kids are so mean. And like, I still remember you know, like the teacher would leave the room and the guy would get up on like this kid who, who I met as an adult man so, and he apologized to me. I mean, that's another story, but, um, just to give him a little bit of grace here, but when he was young, you know, he, he, he would draw like this big circle on a piece of paper with little eyes and little stick legs. And he'd, and he'd get on the chair and he'd be like, look, it's big fat Nikki. And the whole class would sing big girls don't cry until I cried. Yeah, true story. And that was just like one of the, I had to play on my own team when we were playing teams because I was so fat that I was, I, I was the equivalent of numerous people. So I had to play by myself. Like, and I had friends. I was a popular kid. This was just what kids did to each other when I was oh growing up. God. Like it was horrible. And so by the time I got to high school or by the, sorry, by the time I got to junior high school, I had such a complex yeah. and the bullying had been so intense that I started like heavily dieting when I was about 12 and have spent the rest of my life in that cycle. And of course it was made worse by the fact that then when I started acting in my teens, then I would go to meet an agent or to meet, and they would say, you're too fat, right? And at that point, looking back, I wasn't. I mean, I was far below the the average, but I went into an industry where anorexia, literally anorexia, was prized as being something to aspire to. And did you have the strength to have that disease, which of course sounds insane, but like, and that's still the case. I mean, look at the Oscars recently, look at the Olympic yes. skinny, chic. you know, but okay. Hair, heroin chic diet. is coming back now and chic, like it, yeah. people taking diabetes drugs. Like anyway, so, but here's my feeling about it. What I've come to realize is that the industry, we all know this, right? It's an industry. It's a multi-billion dollar industry, right? And there's that great saying, if every woman in the world woke up tomorrow morning feeling good about themselves, a billion dollar industry would fall. Yeah. Like it's predicated on us feeling bad about ourselves. But more importantly, it's consistently used from the time we're very young, our bodies are, and our our level of like relative attractiveness in the culture is used to keep us feeling bad about ourselves because it makes us more malleable socially. Mm -hmm. It makes us easier to control. And I firmly believe this. And this is why when people talk about like, 
oh God, like, you know, why do you talk about, you know, weight all the time? It's like, I'm not talking about weight. I'm talking about an entire culture mm-hmm. that has systemically kept women in lower positions in the workplace, that's kept women in, you know, w- with a level of self-esteem that didn't allow us to achieve at levels that we should have been able to, to keep us sort of having a lack of competitiveness yeah. in the culture mm-hmm. by constantly knocking us down and by making something like our weight, which is it's very unhealthy mm-hmm. to be playing with your body all the time. Yeah. And, it, you know, um, and I remember really becoming aware of it when I was at the Stratford Festival in um, when I was younger, early in my career. And I mean, I was like 30 pounds thinner than I am now. And looking back, I was like, I could not have been more young and beautiful. Yeah. And like my body yeah. was amazing, you know. And the director took me into his office and told me that um, that if I could lose some weight, it would really help the production. <laughs> now, I was playing the wife of a guy 30 years older than me. It was insane. The whole thing was... But what I came to realize when I started the rehearsal process was that he was not someone who was very respected in mm. by his peers. And so... He had made my self-esteem so low that I kind of became the whipping, the whipping girl, or I became that. So it gave him power over yeah. me. Lowering my self-esteem gave him power over me in this room. It, it made it lowered my self-esteem to a point where I was malleable, where I would allow him to do, you know, to treat me in a way that I maybe wouldn't have allowed someone else to, mm. to give him power in the eyes of the people around him. Mm. And it's and then I started hearing how often this was happening to, to women my age from from him and from other people. And it was the first time in my career, um, but also in my life, where I went, oh, this is about so much more than whether people are quote unquote, pretty or not. Yeah. This is not about that. This is about power, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. This is about subjugation. This is about controlling 50% of the population through the manipulation of their self-esteem. Heavy. Very heavy. Yeah. And not about diet culture, you know, like not about women, well, women always worrying about their waistlines. No, fuck that. It's so much bigger than that, right? There's an incredible book, uh, Naomi Wolf, um, I think it's from the, must be from the early 90s because I studied it in high school. But she looks, it's called The Beauty Myth. Mm. And she looks at how the example she gives, which I think is so powerful, because you suddenly go like, oh my God, that's so true. Is she, she gives the example in the book of when, um, when men and women go in for interviews for high positions in business, yes. right? Yeah. Because we have a tendency to be like, oh, this is about media. This is, this is a media problem. This is yeah. people who watch too much. No, sorry. It's not just about that. So the example she gives is if, uh, let's say two middle-aged, um, oh, middle-aged woman and middle-aged man are, um, interviewing, I was going to say auditioning, are interviewing <laughs> for the same high level position uh-huh. in a, let's say fortune 500 company. Right. Yeah. And the guy comes in, the man comes in and he's kind of overweight, not a great suit, you know, some dandruff, balding, but you know, look at his resume. Who cares what he looks like? Yeah. Right. He can get the job done. Look what he's accomplished. Mm-hmm. If a woman comes in, you know, a little overweight, not great suit, dandruff, it becomes, well, if she can't take care of herself, how's she going to take care of a company? Oh my gosh. Right? It's so true. And once he, once I read that, and it was actually, it was interesting, it was a middle-aged white male teacher I had who was this really interesting feminist for his time in the 90s yeah. who taught us all this in high school. And I remember reading that and going, oh my God, and suddenly thinking about all these situations where that's true and how little sense it makes. Why do we equate a woman's appearance with her ability to, to do, do other job. tasks, yeah. to do a job, to mm-hmm. be a good parent, to be a good friend, to be effective out in the world. We don't usually do that with men, yeah. right? Yeah. So it is not about 
whether people are pretty or not, whether people are thin or not. Mm. It's about controlling women in mm-hmm. the culture. And so for me, it became, uh, it's become kind of the hill I, I'm willing to die on in terms <laughs> of my, in terms of my political and, and you know, what, what, what I use my, my, my sort of public power for, mm. because it's not just about getting women to feel better about themselves. And I only say it in that voice because there's so much out there, like, you know, and so much of it is crap, yes. right? Yeah, like, yeah. you want to feel better about yourself? Here's this tea. You want to feel yeah. better about yourself? Meditate for 10 minutes a day. Sure, all of that might be great, but it does not, it still trivializes what yeah. is a much deeper political and sociopolitical issue. 100%. Um, and do you know what the best advice I've ever heard? Because I follow a lot of these sort of activists mm. and one of my favorites is Jamila Jamil. Mm. And actually, Love her. she's yeah. just fucking brilliant. Yeah. And she said something once in a podcast interview, which still sticks with me to this day. She's like, I'm going to paraphrase here, sure. but she basically said, I know I will never look in the mirror and like what I see. Mm. Like, I know that I will just never, that will never be a thing for me. However, one thing I can do is just not allow the idea of liking my body to even play a part in my life. She was like, why do I need to like my body? Compartmentalizing. Yeah. That, yeah like, I don't yeah. need to love myself in order to like physically in order for it to play this huge part in my life. And I was like, that's so true. Like if only we could all get to that stage where it's like how we look is the least interesting thing about ourselves. Absolutely. And I mean, that is the ultimate goal. Right. But how do you get there? (laughs) How do you get there? And and so I think for me, like in terms of the first I want to have when I say that I want to go through a day where I don't think about my body, it's like you said, I'm not saying that I want to look in the mirror and be like, you are perfection. Why would that be the goal? Right. Like it's about not thinking about it. It's about not giving it the bandwidth. Having said that, I do think that part of that journey is also for me anyway, part of that journey is about respecting my body for what it is mm. and all the amazing things that it is, right? Like I think about, you know, I I have all this strength now and I have, I, I've worked on endurance and strength. And I've been so actively working on my health because I've had a lot of health problems in the last few years and, and I've been so committed to working on them and I've gotten better in a lot of ways. And I should be looking in the mirror going, looking at my face, looking at myself, not, not at my face, like to see if I'm looking, looking myself in the eye and going, good for you. Yeah. And instead, no matter how much I do, I look in the mirror and I go, oh, but I'm still 10 pounds overweight. And first of all, over what? Right. 10 pounds (laughs) over over what? what? Right. Like over, um, but more importantly, like that, that we haven't fully succeeded if we haven't achieved this. But here's the other thing that I learned. As an actor, a couple of times I've caved under the pressure and lost a pile of weight, usually in not the healthiest way. And I've gotten to the point a couple of times where I was like, oh, I actually do like the way I look. And you Mm. know what happened next? Did I go, great, excellent, good for you. Let's move on. No, I went, but if I just lose 10 more, because it's not about that psychologically. There's never an end to that. It doesn't end because it's it's not about how you look. It's about the pressure to be constantly Mm. changing and manipulating ourselves. So for me, I would love at some point in my life to have a day where, because I, I get very resentful, I get incredibly resentful to sometimes when I think about how much of my life has been wasted, wasted thinking it, about yeah, my weight. Hundred percent wasted on my weight, wasted on diets, waste. And don't even get me started on now. I'm 41. All of a sudden, it's about like, so you think you're going to get plastic surgery? You're going to get this pulled? You're going to get that tech? And going like, holy fuck! Now I'm going to have to worry about that too on top of everything oh, else. No. But and the answer is, I, one thing I will say is that 
I am finding the work I've done and all this is helping me navigate yes. this new minefield of aging a little bit mm. with a little bit more presence yeah. and a little bit more, um, uh, what's the word? Um, you know, consciousness. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I feel like I get angry when I feel like I have been robbed and we've all to some point as women been robbed of so many hours, days, weeks of our lives to this point bullshit and we can't change it we can't yeah. go back and change the past yeah but i would like to think i, I want to believe that 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 i will have that first i completely completely relate to everything you're saying and it, i even was lying in bed last night and i was thinking my life's pretty great at the moment like the sun's coming out tomorrow i have this interview i'm going like i'm going out for drinks with my friend on thursday and then i was like but my arms are really fat oh exactly and I was like, yeah exactly why 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 have you ruined my life now? Like, it's, again, it's frustrating. Again, this is the trick, right? This is like any other brainwashing, any other... And people, and, you know, I'm sure there's people who are going to listen to this and go like, oh, such dramatic language. It's not dramatic language. It's what it's called. Yeah. It's called brainwashing. Yeah. And that thing that you just described, where you, you'll, when you are feeling good about yourself, that voice kicks in. Mm. That's the intention. Yeah. The, the point the whole cultural thing about keeping us down is so that we'll do it to ourselves, yeah. right? And one of the things that I had in a post recently that a lot of women responded to, like, it was crazy how many women were like, yes, I feel this is, they lower your self-esteem to a point where they don't have to control us anymore. We'll control we ourselves. Control ourselves. No yeah. one has to tell me anymore. No one has to say, oh, you know, you need to lose weight. I'll do it to myself. Mm-hmm. No one has to say you're not pretty enough. I'll tell myself, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's the whole point. And it's so interesting. Like, I had a fascinating moment last year where I, one of the things about coming into my own and starting to feel better about myself is also losing my shame around asking for what I think I'm worth at work. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And for women, this is really hard. And I've started going into negotiations for work being like, no, that is not enough money. Mm-hmm. We all know that my male colleagues and my white colleagues are making more than that. We all know that I deserve more than that. So let's, let's talk, let, let's talk about it that way. Yeah. And I'm going to say no to things if I think they're devaluing me as an artist and I have the privilege right to do that. that. Right so that. I, so I understand that that's a privileged position to be mm-hmm. in. But it's also very important. And I think, you know, anyone, whenever we get the chance to do that, we help the rest of the community by doing that. So I had this great moment where I said, this is how much money I want for this, for this TV show. And the casting director said, no, that's insane. Like, how could she, how could she, because in Canada, we make roughly a a 10th to a fourth of what an American actor makes for the same size role. You right? A 10th? Oftentimes a 10th. So anyway, so I, and I, and I, I was so tired again of being told that I'm crazy to, to ask for what I think I'm worth. Mm-hmm. And so for the first time, I was like, fine, then they can give it to someone else. And it was a big deal, this job. Wow. And luckily, my agents are both amazing. My team, <laughs> my West Coast and my East Coast team are amazing. And they're like, yeah, fuck it. Let's just say no. Like, we, we got we to break the cycle at some point. Yeah. And within 24 hours... They came back and were like, fine, we'll give it. Really? And it was, the, and that doesn't always happen. I've had no, that reverse yeah. happen where they're yeah. like, fine, screw you. Yeah. But like this time, it was the first time when they were like, fine, we'll give you what you want. Yeah. And it was this moment of this huge, hugely empowering moment for me in my personal life and my career and my self-esteem to have mm. asked for what I'm worth. And I thought, oh my God. And I was literally like, I felt high yeah. for about four and a half minutes. <laughs> And then at the four minute and 30 second mark, my brain went, 
now how much weight can I lose before it starts? Because I want them to be glad that they cast me, right? And I literally called my best girlfriend and was like, you're not going to believe what my brain just did. (laughs) Because I know enough now to know what that is. I know what that is. Yeah. Yeah. So I called her and I was like, and she's like a huge activist for this kind of stuff. And she was like, yeah, but good for you for acknowledging it. Like Mm. that this isn't real, that this is just your, you've been trained to do this. You've been Mm. trained to start feeling good about yourself, but we don't want women to feel too good about themselves. So now we got to take it down. And and so it was a but it was this really interesting moment of, on one hand, being like, oh my God, I can't believe after everything, all the work I've done, all I've accomplished in my life, this still happens, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But at least I'm standing up for myself. At yeah. least I know what I'm worth. So yeah. it's, it's these baby steps. And you recognize it as well. Yeah. I'm intrigued to ask you before we move on to the first year you've never yeah. had. In terms of your TV career, of TV, film, theater, yeah. and how that shapes you, what is... Do you think the thing that stands out to you most in terms of like an audition where someone has commented on your weight or your appearance? Oh my or God. Yeah. What comes to mind? I mean, there's a lot of examples, but, um, and it, you know, it doesn't happen anymore because two reasons. One, because people now, I mean, they won't give you the job if, if they, they'll just won't hire you, but yeah. it used to be that they would call you and try and get you to change yourself. And now they won't do that as much because they know that at least, I mean, maybe at the maybe the high, high Hollywood level, like maybe the Marvel level, I'm sure they're still doing all of that. But here at least, they're not likely to say anything. Yeah. But also because my agent and I made a decision after this incident I'm going to tell you about that if anyone gives feedback like that, she doesn't pass it on to me because I don't fucking want it. Yeah. And yeah. I don't need to hear it. Yeah. That's not about me. Yeah. And I don't want that job if that's how you're going to make me feel. So it could have happened and I wouldn't know because after yeah. a point, we both said, fuck it, just... Just say thank you very much and move on. Mm. And just tell me the job's gone. I don't want to know, right? Yeah. But anyway, so the one I remember the most was, I mean, the one I told you about, that, that thing that happened in the theater, that was the one that crushed me. Like, yeah. just Because I dreamt my whole life of going to that company. My whole life. And to have that be what it was was so disappointing on so many levels. Mm. But uh, there was another one that was really interesting where I had done, um, I, I was up for the first time in my career, I was up for the lead uh, in a TV series, and it came down to me and one other girl. And I'd done so many auditions for it. I'd met the director, I'd met the producers, I'd met the network, I'd met everybody. Like it was really down to, I mean, there was a final audition. And I did the final audition, and, and then I went to Europe for the first time. I'd saved all this money, and my girlfriend and I went to this Europe trip together. And while I was on this trip, my agent called, and this was in the days when you had to like go to a place and like the cell phone thing wasn't, we had cell phones, but you wouldn't have brought them with you anyway, so it would have cost $85 a minute. So I had to like go to like a, I got an email or something saying, call me. I went to this like call center, whatever they call them and, you know, made a long distance call and called my agent. She was like, so, so they want you to come in again, but this time they want you to wear less clothes. And I was like, what? And she was like, well, they have in their words, concerns about my body type to play the lead. So they want you to come in again wearing less clothes. And I had this moment. And in that room with that director that I told you about in the theater, Mm. I vividly remember looking at him and thinking... I knew what was happening. I knew yeah. what was being done to me. Now we call it harassment. Now we call yeah. it professional harassment. As now it we is. call it abusive. Yeah. At the time, no one gave a shit about stuff like that. And there was no one to report to. So I, but I remember looking at him and I remember thinking, and I, I remember this in the moment, looking at him and thinking, I know this is wrong. I know this shouldn't be happening, but this job will legitimately change the rest of my career. And so I'm going to put up with this. I'm going to let this happen once. Yeah. And I remember saying to myself in my head, I can hear it in my head. You're going to do this once. 
But if you do this once, you can never do it again. Mm. And I made myself that promise in that room that day. So fast forward, this is maybe three years later, this happens and I'm in this phone booth in Europe. And I said to my agent, and I was like, I, I can't do it. I can't come back just to have them evaluate my body. Because if I do, if I go home and I do this and I don't get it, it will crush me in my self-esteem worse than it, than it already has been. Worse though, if I go back and I do the audition with those girls and I get it, I will spend all the years of this show feeling terrible about myself and fighting with eating disorders. And I, and it would be, and and knowing, knowing Mm. that they're looking at me and judging me. And that's even worse to some degree. Right. And because my agent is incredible, she was like, yeah, she's like, we can't put you in that position. I respect that. And she was like, from now on, if I get feedback like this, I think we just don't even share it. We just say, thank you. We move on. And I was like, cool, great. And I found out years later, and this is so interesting. Years later, after because then my then there was like radio. Then I didn't get a job for years, and I thought, "Holy fuck, I made a huge mistake." No. And that show did like seven seasons, and I was like, "Oh my god, I made a huge mistake!" And then two things happened. The first one was, I had an encounter with an artist who had worked on that show, who mm. told me that the girl who did get it was put through absolute hell, and that it was absolutely horrible for her because they criticized her body all the time, and she was caught she couldn't eat, and she couldn't, and apparently it was awful for her. Gosh. Then. Years later, I'm playing a regular on a show. My career's taken off at this point. Everything's great. I have the career I wanted. It's, uh, dreams are coming true. And I meet this woman who was one of the producers on that show. And she says, yeah, you know, I remember you were in Europe. It was so sad, you know, that you couldn't come back for the callback. And I was like, that's not what happened. She was looking at me and I was like, well, I said, no, I, I, you know, I didn't come back because I didn't want to do the, the thing that you guys were asking for. And she was like, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, about my body type and wanted me to wear less clothes. She had no idea. It was one male producer who sent my agent that email. You are kidding. And the rest of the team was never even informed that that had happened. It was one man who didn't think I was hot enough, who didn't think I was thin enough. And this producer only found out because I worked with her years later. I just wanted to put a quick note in here to mention this episode's sponsors. Of course, avid listeners of the show will know that we've been sponsored by First and Last Coffee for the season, but there's also another sponsor for this episode, which is actually me. (laughs) I tried to phrase that in the least self-indulgent way possible, but yes, you heard that right. I, Emma Tyndall, am sponsoring my own podcast (laughs) and I'm about to tell you why. (laughs) So reason being is I currently help business owners and private clients to develop, produce and edit their own podcasts uh, across a variety of different topics from well-being and self-development to celebrity culture and even audio fiction in the last six months. So the past two years, I've been helping people deliver their podcast babies to the world. And I also want to help you too. So maybe you have a business you're looking to start a podcast for, or you've got a cool concept for a show, but you don't know where to start. Uh, Drop me a message on Instagram at Tyndall Podcasts, or you can reach me via email at tyndallpodcasts at gmail.com. And yeah, let's have a chat about your ideas, the kind of show you're looking to make, and then take things from there. Um, If that sounds like a bit of you, then feel free to get in touch. It'd be great to hear from you. Right, that's it from me. Shameless plug officially over. (laughs) Thank you for bearing with me. Um, Yeah, let's get back to the episode and to the lovely Nicola. Moving on to potentially less happier subject matters. Obviously, the first you wish you'd never had um, was tragically losing your aunt. Mm. And 
I think that it's such a vulnerable thing to share when you lose someone because grief is very rarely straightforward and can be extremely difficult to navigate. So we can go into as much or as little as mm. you want to for this particular um, first. But I wanted to ask you, like, what was your aunt's name? Jackie. Jackie. So what was Jackie like and why did she have such a profound... Um, impact on your life ah oh, so Jackie is my was my mom's oldest sister my mom's one of eight and Jackie was one of eight in a very poor um country in Latin America where the kids really took care of each other to mm. a large extent and so my aunt was very much um, a second mother figure to my mom and her siblings as much as my grandmother was to some extent um and more sometimes at some points. And then uh, when my mom immigrated, my mom and my aunt both immigrated up here. Um, and my aunt's marriage ended just after I was born. And then she lived with us from that point on. So I lived with my aunt and my mom and my dad and my brother. And other people came in and out of the house. Very common in, in Latin American families and Caribbean families. Uh, my mom's family is from Vienna. Um, so, you know, family members, we always had people living there. But my mom, my aunt, my dad, my brother and I always lived in that house. And my mom traveled a lot for work. So my aunt was always, she, she was very much a, a third parent figure. Right. And one of the things that was really amazing about her was like, she was the one, I had a lot in common with her. I always dressed mm. like her. I was, they used to, like, they used to say like a little, like, you know, I was the mini, mini her, oh. you know, I wore all her clothes. I wore all her jewelry, yeah. you know, and she was very much, um, someone who I was just deeply, deeply connected to, as was my brother. And she was very much a different, not, not this different relationship than my mm -hmm. parents, but very much um, uh, a very parental kind of influence. Or sometimes I think it's, it's, it's not right for us to compare like apples and oranges in relationships. It was a relationship unto itself. I lived yeah. with her almost my whole life. She was always there. Unique. Um, unique relationship. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the other thing about her was that she had this point in her life where things really fell apart and really bad things happened to her. And, and it, and her reaction to it was to dedicate her entire life to service. You know, she gave up career, she gave up and she, for, and she basically started just volunteer. I mean, sometimes she had jobs that pay, but just mostly volunteering. Mm -hmm. They actually did a documentary on her. I think on the discovery channel, she was, on the, the street outreach trucks. She worked for street outreach her whole life. She worked at Anishinaabe a lot. She worked for a lot of the different shelters. You know, her commitment to people and to helping people was what defined the rest of her life, mm. right? And she was someone who was selfless to a fault, right? Like it would get her in trouble because <laughs> she really didn't, she really gave other people everything, yeah. you know? And then... In 20, early, no, late 2018, all of a sudden, um, in hindsight, it might've started sooner, but she, she suddenly had like the flu all the time. And then she went to, by the time it got, it just got really far along. And by the time she actually went to a doctor, um, she had like two months to live and, um, and like literally from no, not knowing anything was wrong to, and we'll never know what she knew. That's her journey. And she took that with her. We'll never know what the journey was for her. Maybe, maybe she did have a sense and, uh, but we didn't know. So like from the time that we all knew she was sick to her death was roughly two months, wow. maybe almost, maybe almost three months. Um, and the worst part about it, not the worst part, it's all, it's all it's worse. Terrible. It's all yeah. bad. But her death was like 
very painful and awful mm. and fast and and not fast in a good way where it's like oh it was quick it wasn't quick like the pain part was like really long yeah. compared to what it should have been but quick in the sense that her mind went very quickly so there was no closure i don't think yeah. for her or for, i mean maybe for her you know that was a good thing because maybe she didn't know yeah what was i don't know i would like to think that maybe she but for the rest of us in her life and you know and and she was just her mind went really quickly she was in unbelievable pain mm. from so early on and and then she was gone like literally she went into hospice and was gone you know she she was diagnosed like a month later she went into hospice maybe just over a month later she went into hospice and then a week or two later she was gone and you know one of the things that i found really hard was that she was the person who always encouraged me to think about things like energy and what we put into the world mm. and she believed that what you put in the world if it's positive creates more positive and if you you know if you're good and you put goodness into the world there will be more of it and that that will grow and and it's not that that's not true it's it's that i partially because of her was always someone i was i've always been a very positive person like in yeah. spite of everything that i've t that i talked about earlier in, in our chat i actually have always been a pretty positive person and mm. one thing that i always believed was that whenever something bad would happen, I would go, okay, well, what good came out of this, yes. right? Yeah. So, you know, you lose a job, mm -hmm. okay? That's terrible. Yeah. On the other hand, it opens you up to be able to do this, right? Um, but I also had lived a rel relatively, I grew up in Toronto, like pretty solidly middle-class yeah. most of my life. And I understand looking back now how arrogant that would sound to like people living in war zones, you know, where it's like, you know, where it's like when people like I, I've never liked when people say things happen for a reason because it's like, really, then why are children dying yeah. in the Ukraine right yeah. now? Like, I'm sorry, I don't believe that. But I did believe because I've been very sheltered in some ways. That something good comes out of something bad. Or that at the very least, not that something good necessarily comes out of it, but at the very least you can think about it and go... I got something good from this, even if it's Silver something lining. that's only bad, yeah. but like I learned this good thing yeah. from it. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And what happened after my aunt died is that for the first time I was like, oh, nothing good. There's nothing good about this. There's nothing. I haven't learned anything positive from this. Yeah. I've only learned things that are sad. Yeah. Um, what happened to her is so unfair and there was no benefit to her in this at all. Um, her family was traumatized and, and there's, and just like, there's nothing good yeah. about this, nothing. Yeah. And that realization that some things in life are just bad. Yeah. And we in, in privileged communities, at least, are allowed to go through life sometimes believing that there's always a silver lining or if you flip the thought on its head, you know, and positive th thinking. Yeah. And that's great if yeah. you have the luxury to live like that. Yeah. But it's also true that sometimes things happen that are just inexplicable yeah. in the sense that they're not for anything, yeah. right? Yeah. And, or children wouldn't die wars wouldn't happen mm -hmm. like there's some things that just and it's you know it's the argument against god for yeah. a lot of people yeah right if there's a god why would he and i remember someone saying and i've never been religious but i remember someone being like well it's because god wants the babies with them and i remember being like 
but why wouldn't he just let the parents keep their babies and then have them when they die? Like yeah. if he's all, you know, and again, like yeah. I'm not criticizing religion. It's just that that never Thought really made sense to yeah. me because it was, but it was the first time in my life when I actively was like, oh, this is just shit. Fucking horrible. Yeah. But you're right. It does come from a place of privilege. And I've had someone on the podcast before. We talk a lot about, um, mindfulness and things that happen which you you know self-development and things like that stuff that people may consider to be wanky subjects but do hold a positive place in our world don't get me wrong but he was like i'm not going to sugarcoat it you know i grew up in a working class family and there is nothing remotely great about not being able to afford dinner for your kids no nothing where is the silver lining in that where is the positivity in that and it's like you can't go out and tell someone it's the whole 24 hour in a day myth that like you have every right to be successful and you can you know you can do whatever you want we all have the same amount of time and it's like no it's not even and sometimes things are just shit um and you have to get through it in whatever way works best for you and that it's okay to be angry when those things happen. Yeah. You know, like it's okay to, it's okay to feel like it's really unfair and I, and to not mm. try and find the silver lining at some point, you yeah. know, cause now years later, I, I mean, I guess one thing that I would say in hindsight, you know, I can see forming a little bit is I had so much regret about not having been there for her in the years before she died because my career was taking off. I had a little kid. Mm. I was so busy. I was so busy. This makes me very emotional. Um, No, it's okay. Um, I was so busy. Yeah. And it felt so important. It felt so important. And I wouldn't answer the phone because I knew I couldn't offer her what I thought she wanted when she probably just wanted to hear my voice. Mm. And I didn't see her very much in the last, after everything I'd been through with her, I, uh, I just wasn't there very much. And I had so much guilt about that and, and that may never go away and maybe that's okay. But one thing that I have noticed in the last few years is that it has changed my relationship with my parents, for example, right? Like I was supposed to be going down to like, there were things I was thinking like, I was like, Oh, maybe I'll move to LA and like, see if I can, you know, next step in my career. And or, you know, maybe I'll move to Vancouver, maybe I'll and these sorts of things. And suddenly I was like, no, I don't want to be away from my parents. Yeah. My parents are in their seventies. Like yeah. I'm happier. Do I, do I want to be away from my son? I only have one kid. Do I want, and it started making me, you know, like I call my parents every single day. I spend so much more time with my parents than I used to because it taught me that things are finite and they can go like that. It made me realize I learned about myself, how I felt mm-hmm. knowing that I had prioritized A over B or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to do that again. And I feel like that's been positive. Um, you know, sharing this the first time I shared these feelings, um, this was actually a really amazing moment. Uh, so fast forward to this next summer after she passed away, I was at a convention a fan convention in Milan and there's this group um, room for 10 or 15 people mm-hmm. and it's just alone with me and that it's one of the options right and because it was a small group it was all fans of mine who are like just the most like dedicated wonderful people like fans that I've got to know over the years where, where they're like really they're lovely supportive people who show up for me all the time like mm-hmm. it's amazing and it happened to be a group of of that those kinds of fans that I actually felt pretty comfortable with and they asked me, how do you stay so positive all the time? 
And I remember my agent was with me. He was one of my oldest friends. And the translator that I had was someone I'd gotten, I, I felt quite connected to. And so they were there too. And it was a small group. And thank God there weren't cameras because I just, it wasn't something that I wanted to share like that. But I literally did not, I didn't think I was opening any kind of door. I was just like, well, actually I'm not positive all the time. I was like, I'm, I'm not positive all the time. Sometimes I'm, I'm but, but I work towards trying to be positive. I was like, but sometimes I'm not. And then I was like, you know, for example, and in my mind, I was just giving an example yeah. and I gave this example. And as soon as I started to say the words, I felt it coming and I was like, oh my God, I can't stop it. And I just started sobbing and I couldn't stop it. I'd never had anything like that. Like I couldn't control it. It was like literally what they talk about in movies where the floodgate opens. But it was in front of, and these weren't even, these were fans. These were people that were there to like take pictures with me. And in my mind for me to like make them feel good and, and they all started crying and my agent was crying and she, she knew my aunt and, and, this, and we were all, wow. and I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I couldn't stop it. And I sort of, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry that I know this isn't what you paid for. <laughs> and they were amazing. They were all like, no, like I've grieved as well. Or like I'm grieving now. Or, and it was this like really beautiful moment where these people who we don't really know each other, but they were so supportive and shared themselves a little bit with me and they held space for me to go through that moment Mm. and the amazing thing was not one single one of them tweeted about it not one single one of them wrote about it anywhere on social media not even like a oh Nicola was so honest like nothing it was like they just respected that they had been there for a moment in my grief that was important to me and not one of them said and and that's the kind of thing that like Another kind of person might have been yeah. like, "This is a great well, like this is th- yeah. this is a big thing, yeah. right?" Like I had the and then because then and that happened. Then when I left, I was out on the balcony crying at this big convention center, and there was some there was a couple of reporters like the, the cameramen with long lens, lens came yeah. taking pictures of me crying, and I had to like go into. So that happens. That disrespect does happen in my industry. But these people in that room with me, not one of them mm. ever said a word because they protected my yeah. my grief. You must know. have been so cathartic as well. Oh my God. It was crazy. And it was like, so again, like, you know, I guess those are good things. Yeah. To yeah. some degree, right? Yeah. Like in a way I'm kind of contradicting, but, but they're good things, but they're not, Worth you know, it. no, I mean, it's not like, oh, exactly. Thank, you know, it's like, like, oh exactly. it's not like, I'm glad it happened. That yeah. got me here. Thank yeah. God. Like, I'd yeah. like to think I could have got there. Yeah. Way. But the point is just that, you know, it, you know, it's the kind of thing that, um, I think grief and pain and, and the bad lessons, we still have to find a way to integrate them into who we are Yeah. or, or they stay with us in a way that, that gets in the way of our happiness or our future. Right. Mm -hmm. So no matter how bad it is, if we, if we're lucky enough, we find a way to integrate it and move forward Mm -hmm. and hopefully, you know, learn from it. Definitely. And yeah, so that's, uh, and I, and I think I, I think I have, I think I'm still learning from it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Nicola, thank you so, so much. This has been one of the the best conversations that I've had on this podcast, honestly, from the bottom of my heart. Thank, oh, you. thank you. Like, you've been so vulnerable and honest and, like, just so generous to share all of the stories that you have. And, like, I just... Yeah, we're done. Oh, it's just oh, so I'm good. I'm happy to. I'm happy to.